Thank you, guys. If you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 18. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we need your wisdom and we need heart change to get this right. Please, God, help us. Help us to know you. Help us to be changed by you. Help us. Right. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Some things in our faith are hard to understand. Balancing out the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, that can be tough to understand fully. Understanding exactly how the Holy Trinity works is enough to make your brain hurt. Trying to imagine what it means that there is no beginning to God. God exists from eternity past. That's more than your brain can really, really handle. But some things are hard not to understand, but to do. It's hard to be constant in prayer. Right? Wouldn't you agree that that's not easy? It's hard to love like Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? And it's especially hard in the real world to deal with the issue of forgiveness. How do you forgive? When do you forgive? What does it mean to forgive? What does a restored relationship look like when you have forgiven? Is all forgiveness the same? Is there ever a time when it's inappropriate to forgive? Questions like those arise as we struggle through the hard emotions and the complicated relationships of real life. Well, this morning we have a passage in which Jesus shows us the necessity of forgiveness. And the passage is actually easy, though its teaching cuts us right down to the quick. And our plan this morning is twofold. First, we're going to look at the passage and see the biblical necessity to forgive. Then... We'll wrap up with a look at what it means to forgive in the way that Jesus actually commands. So there will be two points, and there's no way in one message we exhaust this entire topic. But Lord willing, we'll make progress in helping us all to understand and take part in biblical forgiveness. That's what we're calling the sermon, by the way, biblical forgiveness. Now, before we jump in... Let me go ahead and point out to you what is most often the biggest problem with teaching this passage and this topic too simply. If we let this passage stand alone with no context reading into it and informing it, you're going to come away believing that God commands you to automatically, blindly, unconditionally forgive every offense that you've ever faced. 
And that's not super bad if we're talking about some small, whiny, personal slight. But that can be devastating when dealing with situations of real hurt. That can be faulty and dangerous when we deal with issues of abuse. So let's be wise enough to know that what we study today is not a rule to itself outside of the remainder of the context of Scripture. Goodness, what we're studying today has context in the chapter that informs it. Now, at the same time, if I teach this passage and focus us all on the qualifiers and all the ways that you don't have to obey what feels like a command to forgive, we'll lose the intensity of the teaching. Jesus intends this passage to catch us off guard and feel radical. So though we have to be wise to the context and to the nuances of forgiveness, we have to let this passage hit us hard. If you don't let this hit you hard, you miss Jesus' point. So here's what we're going to ask you to do this morning with me, okay? Work with me this morning as we walk through this passage. First, We're going to go through the passage and we need to feel the pressure of the necessity of forgiveness. For some of you, that's really the only message God wants to emphasize today. But once we've looked at that issue, we're going to come back and we're going to take a broader, more sweeping, more contextual look at biblical forgiveness so that we can prevent others of us from being crushed under the weight of misunderstanding what forgiveness like Jesus looks like. So be willing to work with me, neither ignoring the weight of the command, nor failing to see the nuance of biblical forgiveness. Okay? Point number one, be willing to forgive because you have been forgiven. Point number one is be willing to forgive because you have been forgiven. I start at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. We open the passage and we see the apostle Peter coming to Jesus with a question about forgiveness. And it makes sense because Jesus just talked with us in verses 15 to 17 about how we confront a brother when he sins against us. Confronting, by the way, with a view toward forgiveness and restoration. And Peter wants to know, well, just how many times ought we to forgive a sinful brother in Christ? So Peter throws out, you know, just like good negotiations, right? You've got to throw out a starter point to haggle from. Peter proposes the number seven for how many times we might forgive. This is magnanimous. This is big of Peter because the common rabbinical teaching of the day was to tell people you forgive somebody up to three times, but that's it. Peter doubled the normal teaching and threw in one more forgive just for good measure. So you can imagine how shocking it must have been for Peter to hear Jesus tell him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In case you're not good at math, 70 times seven is 490. But of course, that's not the point either. Jesus is not saying that our offer of forgiveness extends to 490. 
But at 491, you knock somebody out. (laughs) Now, Jesus is showing us there's no limit to how many times you forgive a brother or sister in Christ. Now, if that doesn't feel shocking enough to blow up your morning, watch what Jesus tells as a story to illustrate eagerness to forgive. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So here's a parable coming. A parable is an earthly story that communicates a major spiritual truth. Parables are often extreme. They often have plot twists that should catch you off guard and drive home the point that Jesus is teaching. And here we've got a king or a master with a couple servants. And the story goes that the king called in his servants because he wanted to do a little accounting. We don't know why. It doesn't matter why. But one of the servants owed the king a massive sum of money, 10,000 talents. Now, there's no fair way to ever say exactly how much first century money would be in today's money. But 10,000 talents is a load of money. Um, Old Bible verses and old records would say that a, a worker's daily wage tended to be around a denarius for a day's labor. Well, one of the measures of a talent is 6,000 denarii. Nearly 20 years wages. So if you do the math with 10,000 talents, you could say that the servant owed his king billions of dollars. It was more, the servant owed more money than he could pay back if he worked for several lifetimes straight. Well, You can imagine the servant who had managed to run up a debt with his master of, oh, let's say $7 billion just to have a number. He might be in trouble if he shows up with no money. So the king, as is his right, ordered the man and his family sold to slaves. This, of course, is not going to begin to recoup the financial loss, but it does prevent the servant from going free and saying, ha, no biggie. Now, 26 and 27 So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. By the way, think of that. I'll pay you everything. You owe seven billion plus dollars. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Oh, he falls down. Oh, he grovels for his freedom. He begs for patience. Please, I'll pay you back. (laughs) That's nuts. This man's never going to come back, come back with the funds. But the master has mercy, and in our story, the master simply forgives the servant's debt. He, he foregoes his right to collect or to even punish the servant for his failure. Now, right now, this feels like Gospel Parable 101, doesn't it? This is easy. It all goes in the direction, giant debt, never paid, master forgives, this looks like God, I love it. 
But when that same servant went, um, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So we have the forgiven servant leaving the presence of the forgiving master. And eventually the servant comes across one of his fellow servants that owes him some money. It's a hundred denarii. That's, that's about a third of a year's wages. So if we can assume the original servant owed the master around seven to nine billion dollars, this fellow servant owes around 20,000. Well, what do you expect? What do you, what, I mean, you think about it. What, what, what the reader who first hears this expects. You would expect that the servant who had been forgiven billions would be gracious to someone who owes him thousands. Now, a hundred days wages is significant. 20,000 bucks matters. But in comparison to billions, this is not a major amount of money. So we're surprised, we're even offended when we see the forgiven servant start choking his fellow servant and demanding payment. And the fellow servant uses almost identical language to the forgiven guy, right? But the first servant's not going to have any of it. He orders the second servant thrown into debtor's prison. Now back those days, it wasn't at all unheard of to send somebody to jail for a debt. The idea is... If I send you to prison, I can force you to ask your family and your friends for money so that you can repay your debt and get out of jail. And that practice actually remained popular for centuries. Even up to the mid-19th century, the 1840s and 50s, there were debtors' prisons in the United States. They didn't really go away until modern bankruptcy laws came into existence. 31 when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You got the other servants, they see what happens. They can't do anything about it to help the one servant who's going to jail, so they go to the boss and they tell the boss what they'd seen and the boss is mad, really mad. The master calls in the, the servant who had originally been forgiven a gigantic amount and the master points out his hypocrisy. If the servant had been forgiven billions, why could he not forgive a debt of thousands? And so the master reverses his original decisions. He hands the unforgiving servant over to the jailers, sending him to what the language would give us an indication is a tortuous prison where he will never get out because there's no way he could ever come up with those funds. And then verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's the conclusion. 
There's the twist that reminds you and me not to get lost in the parable and the stories and, oh, what might this symbolize? And, oh, what that might, what might that symbolize? Don't worry about it. Here's the answer. God the Father will judge those who refuse to forgive others who've been forgiven by God. If you've been forgiven much by God, you better be a forgiving person. So if Peter wants to know, can I limit how many times I forgive a fellow believer? The answer is no. You cannot limit the number of times you forgive a fellow believer. If Peter has been forgiven a huge debt by God, he must, he absolutely must be willing to forgive other people. And that's where the point is, be willing to forgive because you have been forgiven. If we're indeed people forgiven by God, what sin against you could you not forgive? Be careful, by the way, not to shut your heart down here. See the parallels. How great a debt has God forgiven us? We owed God billions in spiritual capital. We had no hope of ever having that debt eliminated. But God, out of His great merciful love for us, made a way for us to be forgiven. Jesus paid our debt. Jesus bore our punishment in His body on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Well, if Jesus has forgiven you and me an infinite debt, we must understand that it should be a mark of our hearts that we be eager to forgive other people. No person has sinned against you or me an infinite amount. No person has ever gone against us to a level to match our rebellion against a God who is infinite in His holiness. And so in all of our lives, the sins of others against us are smaller than the debt God forgave us. No person has ever offended us on earth as much as our sin is an offense to a holy God. Now, please notice, the Savior didn't pretend that the debt of another's sin against you is minuscule. Jesus didn't say the second service owed the first servant pennies. The second servant owed thousands. It was a big deal. But it's tiny in comparison to the amount the first servant owed the master. So, forgive because you've been forgiven. Whenever you want to say to yourself, I've given them too many chances. They owe me too much. They hurt me too bad. You've got to recognize that you have been forgiven more by God. God has given you more grace than you could ever give to another person. And that grace of God should motivate you to want to show grace to others. And the other side of the coin here is scary. If you are a person unwilling to forgive, I would never forgive them no matter what they did. Watch out. 
If you can look at a fellow believer in Christ and declare that under no circumstances would you or could you ever forgive them, you're putting yourself in a dangerous spot. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, after the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Remember that Jesus told us we prayed, forgive us our debts. How? How are we supposed to, how do we pray, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as... Don't you wish that line wasn't in there? True story. If I'm editing scripture, I'm cutting that stuff out. Don't let me redact. But you know what Jesus said after the prayer? Matthew 6, 14 and 15, he said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'd also cut that out, just so you know. But see, God's better than me and bigger than me and smarter than me. See, this passage from the teaching on prayer and today's passage on forgiveness carry with them this very, very stern warning. If you and I are unwilling to forgive other people, it may be a mark that we have never actually been changed by God. If you are a person unwilling to forgive, that could be a sign that you're a person headed for the judgment of God. Now stop. Let it sink in. Forgiveness is a big deal. Unwillingness to forgive is a big deal. If we've been forgiven by God, we must be willing and eager to forgive others. And if we let ourselves wiggle out of this uncomfortable spot too quickly this morning, we'll miss the sharp point of Christ's teaching. So, friends, don't wiggle. Pray. God, does my heart need to be softened? Am I too smug? Am I too full of myself and my rights? Pray, God, is there somebody in the church I need to forgive? They've hurt me, but they want to be forgiven. I need to let it go. Are you holding grudges? Pray and ask God to keep you from thinking that you ever hold the moral high ground so much that you can write somebody off. Pray. Ask God, God, don't let me slide out from under this. Shape me to be forgiving like you're forgiving. Forgive. Be willing to forgive because you've been forgiven. Point number two. Forgive biblically. Forgive biblically. Now that we felt the pressure to forgive, by the way, let me ask you, just be honest with me. You feel some weight from this passage? Two of you feel some weight from this passage. Very, very proud of you two. The rest of you goofballs. If you don't feel weight from this passage, something's wrong. Don't you think? This is pressure. This is serious pressure. So we better think about what it means to forgive biblically. Is forgiving a unilateral, unconditional, internal process? I have to do it no matter what. Or is there more to it than all that? 
You may recall, if you've been here for a while, right after I arrived here in 2015, we did a Sunday school class on forgiveness. Some of you remember that class? Amen. And we used the book Unpacking Forgiveness by the author Chris Brauns, B-R-A-U-N-S. And that book is still the best teaching I know of on the topic of biblical forgiveness. Because Brauns takes the time in the book to show us what forgiveness is and what it's not. He also shows us that the forgiveness process cannot always be completed. In fact, Chris Brauns shows us that there are times when granting forgiveness would be unbiblical. So if forgiveness is a topic you need to study, if you're wrestling with this, if if this passage, man, if you felt weight from this passage, you go, okay, but what about this? I've got a hard situation and I can't just just let it go. I would really recommend that you pick up Chris Braun's Unpacking Forgiveness and work through it. If you need help to find the book, let me know. I'll help you find it. If you want to talk about it, I would love to meet with you and talk with you about it. So just reach out to me, okay? I will help you here. But right now, let's take a couple of minutes before we get done to be sure that we handle the call to forgive in the passage's context and in the light of what forgiveness is in the rest of Scripture. Because yes, we should feel a very sharp, very weighty burden to biblically forgive, but we should not feel a crushing weight to forgive when forgiving would not honor Christ. And there are times, friends, that you saying to somebody, I forgive you, would actually dishonor Christ. So first, let's think about this command to forgive that we see in this big parable in the context of Matthew 18. We saw at the beginning of the passage, right, Jesus is talking to the disciples about life in the family of God. And he called his followers to be humble, lowly like little children if they want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus warned us with dreadful severity, do not be the kind of person that leads weak people into sin. And then he called us to perform radical spiritual amputations on our lives in things that would lead us into sin, right? If your right hand causes you to sin. And cut it off and throw it away. And then Jesus reminded the disciples, God loves it when straying little ones like straying sheep are found and brought home. And God loves restoration. God loves it when we Christians go get somebody who's struggling or stumbling and we help them back into the family. And then last week, we looked at verses 15 to 20, the the church discipline passage. And in that passage, Jesus showed us how we are to rightly confront a straying brother or sister in Christ. And, And I want you to let your mind go to that because it will inform what we talk about here today. Look at 15, 18, 15. If your brother, Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. See the process, right? If your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? If you misinterpret this parable at the end of the passage, 
Your answer would be that, well, the first step of my brother sins against me is for me to forgive him. But is that what Jesus said to do in verse 15? Don't you think that would have made sense if that was what Jesus meant? Jesus said, confront him. Go privately, tell him of his wrong. Every bit of the church discipline process is aimed at the glory of God to restore a sinful brother, to bring them to repentance and back into the faith, walking firmly with God. But the process of church discipline does not begin with instant, unilateral forgiveness. Nor is that ever mentioned in the passage. What is in the passage is a clear understanding that the moment the straying brother repents of his sin, you restore that straying brother to fellowship. Forgiveness in the context of this chapter is never instant. Forgiveness is always in this chapter conditional. It requires repentance on the part of the sinful party. Now, if nothing else, you apply this context to the call to forgive, you've got to see that there's more going on. There's more going on here than a blanket command that says you should immediately, privately, unilaterally, unconditionally forgive every sin ever committed against you and pretend like it never happened. That is not the command of God. That would not honor God. And that would, if you call people to that kind of unbiblical ignoring of sin, that is crushing to the wounded believer and it well could be damning to someone who has not yet repented of sin. How then are we to forgive? How did Paul write it to us in the New Testament? In Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, Paul writes, Bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So how are we to forgive? What did you hear in those two verses I read to you? What did you hear that says how you forgive? You forgive as what? As the Lord forgave you, you forgive. Thus our definition of forgiveness and the process we follow in forgiveness needs to mirror the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you as we consider the gospel, how did God forgive you? Did the Lord privately, unilaterally, unconditionally forgive you with no response on your part? I don't care how reformed you are, that didn't happen. God did not do that. The Lord did initiate the process. The Lord did take action to forgive you graciously. But our forgiveness is not automatic and it was never cheap. The Bible tells us quite clearly that we've all sinned against God and we've earned God's wrath. But God, out of his great love, for God's great glory, sent Jesus into the world to rescue his children. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died to pay for our sins. He rose from the grave. And Jesus calls all people and says that we are commanded by God to come to Jesus in faith and repentance to be saved. Is that true, by the way? Does Jesus command people to come to him in faith and repentance to be saved? 
If you disagree with that, we need to talk firmly because there's a problem with your gospel understanding. Jesus absolutely commands us to come to him in faith and repentance to be saved. But notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not look at us in our sin and say to us, even if you never want my forgiveness, even if you never repent, I just want you to know that I have already forgiven you. That's not gospel. Jesus commanded us to turn from our sins and come to him in order to receive the forgiveness that he came to give us. Chris Browns writes it this way, God's forgiveness is a package that he wraps up and offers, but the package of forgiveness must be opened. The Bible teaches that the way the package is opened is through repentance and faith. At the end of the day, you and I need to know what God's forgiveness is. I'm going to quote Bronze again. He says, God's forgiveness, a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. He says, God's forgiveness is, colon, a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. That's a great, great way to see forgiveness in the gospel. Forgiveness requires a commitment, a prior commitment on God's side to release us from the penalty we owe for our sin. Aren't you glad God does that? God's forgiveness comes to us based on the work of Jesus Christ who came to pay our debt. It was very costly. God's forgiveness comes to whom? All who repent and believe. Again, we know that's true, right? That's who saved, all who repent and believe. But God's forgiveness does not come to anybody automatically. God's forgiveness brings us into a proper relationship, a restored relationship with God. But... God's forgiveness does not remove every earthly consequence of everything that we've ever done. That makes sense to you? If you committed a crime, went to jail, and came to faith in Jesus while you're in jail, guess where you stay the next day? In jail. Jan, you don't let them out, right? Just because just they come a Christian? Okay, you can go now. You're forgiven. No. The consequences of sins they've committed still still stick, right? If if, if I was, you know, if, if you were if you were driving a car and you're not a, you're not a Christian and you because of sinful actions or sinful choices have an accident and you lose an arm, you don't pray to receive Jesus and then poof the arm grows back. Consequences do remain. That's what it means by not all consequences are removed. And if you put all that stuff together, though. Get this, our forgiveness of others is supposed to look like the forgiveness God gives us. We forgive others by making a commitment to release them from that emotional penalty that we have as we desire to make them pay for hurting us. By the way, have you ever wanted to make somebody pay? I mean, tell me the truth. How many of you have ever told somebody off? Did, did, yes, stupid. Jason points out they're raising their hands. I'm going to tell all you all off. It's okay. When you told somebody off, 
Were you doing it for their good and for their benefit and just to show grace and restoration? You were doing it to get yours, right? I want you to hurt because you made me hurt. That's satanic. It's not godly. Now, since we've all admitted we've done it, none of us has the high ground, right? Forgiveness is releasing somebody from that penalty that you think you have the right to extract from them by making them pay a little bit more. You forgive somebody by you personally bearing the cost of letting go of your anger against them. And by the way, is it costly to let go of your own anger? You betcha. We forgive others when they recognize that they've wronged us and they repent. We forgive others and that forgiveness leads to us restoring relationship with them as best it can be restored. We forgive others, but our forgiveness of somebody else may not remove every worldly consequence. And this brings up to our minds a ton of questions, right? And the answers are not always easy. So let's try to think it through as we prepare to wrap up, okay? First, remember the parable that we had from the beginning. You and I are required to forgive or at least to have a forgiving heart. So if a person sins against you, you think that ever happens, by the way? Your reaction in your heart between you and the Lord needs to be that you want to see that person repent, be forgiven, and be restored. That needs to be your heart between you and God. Because you know what? Even on the cross, the Lord Jesus prayed for the forgiveness and restoration of men who were killing him. Although, you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't look down from the cross and say, I just want you guys to know you all are forgiven. He prayed that the Father might forgive them. And how could the Father forgive them? What would they have to have done? Repented. Jesus didn't even unilaterally, automatically forgive on the cross. We, like Jesus, are to desire to see those who have harmed us repent so that we can forgive them. So our first step is a lowly humility, a recognition of our own sinfulness before God that would lead us to want to forgive others and help them be restored to the fellowship with the Lord. That should be in our hearts. That's what the parable's about. But then what do we do? As we learned in our study of verses 15 to 17, we make a decision. If the sin that somebody has committed, if the offense somebody's given me is accidental, if it's petty, if it's small, if it's not regularly part of their character, I might choose just to forgive them and let it go. That actually is okay. There are times that you just need to live with it because it's not a big deal. Pray for them. But if you decide I'm going to let it go, guess what you need to do? Let it go. (laughs) Somebody should write a song about that. That's not what that stupid song's about, just so you know. (laughs) Don't bring it back up the first time you get cranky again. That's dishonoring to the Lord. In fact, what do we call the person in the Bible who constantly tries to bring back before the Lord sins that have been forgiven? 
Satan. That's what the devil does. He accuses the brethren. Don't act like him. But if the sin is not accidental, or if the sin is not tiny, we rightly confront the person following the steps of church discipline in Matthew 18, 15-17. Which means we extend to the person who has sinned against us an offer of forgiveness, like a wrapped present. We hold out grace to them. And if they will repent, they can unwrap the gift of grace and they will find our forgiveness inside. But if they won't turn from their sin, we continue in the church discipline process until the situation is resolved. It'll either be resolved by them repenting and being restored or it'll be resolved by us saying, this person is not a believer in the Lord Jesus according to the the, the common understanding of the church as they watch them continue in their sin. Now, when I say we don't forgive in this situation, I'm not talking about the kind of unforgiveness that Jesus is talking about in the parable. Jesus is after, in the parable, those who have hearts unwilling to forgive. I don't care what they do. I won't forgive them. I don't like them. I hate them. I won't let it, I won't let it go, no matter whether they repent or not. Jesus is after that. We need to be eager and willing to forgive a person when they turn from sin. And when a person turns from sin, we forgive them. What does that mean? It means that you and I make a commitment not to bring their sin up against them any further. You don't bring it up to them to try to hurt them. You don't bring it up to others in gossip. You don't even bring it up to yourself as you dwell on how much that person wronged you. Forgiveness means you put it away. You cover their sin. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. You cover it. You restore relationship with them to the best of your ability. But forgiveness does not remove all consequences because there may be parts of a relationship that cannot be what they were before the time of sin. If you stole from my house, I might forgive you, but I might not choose to leave you there alone again. At least not for a time. I'm not even being silly here. If a Christian abused you in some way, forgiveness does not mean that you have to put yourself in a position to be vulnerable to be abused by them again. You do not ever have to continue to submit to abuse. If you're in a situation like that, come talk to me. One of the elders will help you follow biblical steps to respond to it. But no, forgiveness does not mean you let somebody continue to hurt you. It's possible to forgive a person for their sin against you even as you watch them go to jail for a crime against you. And by the way, you can, in fact, you may be called to testify against them in a court of law. And you could say on the witness stand, I have forgiven them, but this is what they did. And according to the law of the land, jail is their future. That's not unforgiveness. Forgiveness does not remove all consequences of sin. Bronze defines our forgiveness of each other this way. He says, forgiveness, colon, a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. 
Well, that sounds just like it, the way he defined forgiveness from God, because it is. The parable from Jesus threatening us with consequences if we don't forgive, that's about our eagerness and our willingness to work through the process of forgiveness, even church discipline, to see to it that we're reconciled with repentant persons. We should always be willing. We should always be eager to show others the grace God has shown to us. And if you're not, it should scare you. Because it may mean you don't actually have the grace of God. Now, if this raises more questions for you than it does answers, I get it. I understand. Come talk to me later. Call me. Pick up the book by Chris Bronze. It's really good. The gospel says God held out forgiveness to us and finished the process of forgiveness when we repented of sin and trusted in Christ. May we hold out that grace to others so that our lives look like the Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, there's nothing easy about this. And we would ask you for the wisdom to get it right. For those here, Lord, who have been hurt and abused and who I know hearing any of this could make them feel just freaked out. Help them see that you have not called them to a place of dis, uh, of craziness, of, of allowing themselves to be hurt. That you haven't called them to a place where they can be stepped on again. What you're calling us to is to look like Jesus. And we're this topic stirs up hard memories. By the grace of Jesus, I pray you will cover, soothe, heal, and bring restoration. But God, don't let us think that we can be harsh, graceless people and be under your grace at the same time. Have mercy on us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.